Hello and welcome to this special episode of Beyond Business with Wärtsilä, a podcast series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to our global problems. I'm your host Atte Palomäki, and this time I wanted to take a trip back through what has been a captivating first six months of the series. We have met brilliant guests and tackled some huge issues so far, and we're only just getting started. So without further ado, here are some of my most impactful discussions from Beyond Business. First up is a conversation I had with economists Robert Costanza from the Australian National University and Rutger Höxtra from the United Nations University about how to measure quality of life and finding alternatives to gross domestic product GDP as a scorecard for development. Could you elaborate a bit on the tangible benefits of scrapping or devaluing GDP as a measure of progress? Well, I think it will help us to achieve our real goals, which are sustainable well-being. The fact that we're so focused on just the marketed activity and, and, and part of that activity is really harmful leads us down the wrong path. You know, we, we do things that say, oh, we can't take care of the environment because that's going to hurt the economy as measured by GDP. In fact, the opposite is true. You know, if we hurt the environment, we are hurting our well-being. And we're, we're using GDP as an excuse to continue to, to continue to do that. It's not, good for, it's not good for us in the long run, or the short run for that matter. Anything you'd like to add to that, Ruther? I think also one of the strange things about GDP is that by focusing on GDP, we're actually focusing on the system, right? So we're trying to make the system better. While actually, if we were more focused on the people, uh, the system should actually be adapted towards people's well-being. You know, we didn't create an economy for its own sake. Uh, an economy is supposed to serve the people and is also not supposed to be a short-term enterprise. And and so I think just from a more philosophical perspective, I think we need to shift our attention away from this system. So making the system better but actually making the lives of people better both now and in the future. Another guest would like to see GDP being talked about alongside GNH, or the Gross National Happiness Index. This was Frank Martela, a philosopher and researcher of psychology who specializes in the question of happiness and meaningfulness of life. It's not the best idea to like you know to compare them with each other that we should have one and not the other, but it's like better to see them as kind of like that mo- both are needed for a more comprehensive evaluation of the progress and like situation of the development of the nation. So like we need to know something about the economics of the nation, and GDP works well in like measuring what it what is supposed to be measuring, which is like you know this like how much how, how much there is like trade and how much money is mo- money and, and and stuff is moving in the country. But at the same time, like if we would want to use GDP as a measure of like you know people's well-being, that it has several like shortcomings. So, for example, it doesn't take into account inequality. So that it doesn't take into account who is getting the money, who is getting wealthy in the in the country, or who is not. So like the GDP is blind to that kind of developments. Also nowadays, when there's more and more talk about these environmental issues, that's something that the GDP is, is not good at accounting for, and that's why many politicians and policymakers are arguing that we need to like have these measures for also the environmental impact. And then there's also like quite many of the factors that make us happy are factors that are not measured by the GDP. For example, the close relationships that are also already mentioned, you know, it, it's a key factor to, to people's happiness around the world, but it's not something that the GDP usually captures. 
And also the basic sense of security, you know, that feeling that you can walk on the street without being harmed and, you know, feeling feeling safe in your home that no, nobody's going to break in there and you are not going to be killed or, you know, something like that. These kind of like things are not, not again, something that the GDP doesn't account for. So in that sense that GDP is good, good for the things that is measuring, but but we need like, you know, some other indicators besides it that we should follow in the politics. So any politic, political like an idea which is only following one measure is quite bad. What is also bad or even devastating is the fact that hundreds of millions of children around the world have little or no access to education. Peter Westerbakka and Samson Kofi Adote spoke passionately about improving access to education worldwide. Companies have a vested interest in making sure that people get the right type of education. That also is, to some extent, a politicized topic. And uh, in your view, how does one put the companies, the private and the public side together in a meaningful way to create the type of environment that is needed? Yeah, I think uh, the starting point is that we need to put them together. Uh, so we need to have a dialogue. And I think that that is uh, super, super important because nobody else besides, you know, the companies in this case, the businesses uh, actually know better than themselves, you know, what they need. And, and I think that this is one disconnect that we see many times that there is not enough dialogue between then the education ministries and, and you know, uh, the people in charge on the public side. But yeah, I think that I don't know if it's like oversimplifying it, but uh, again, it, it is about uh, bringing the people together and then uh, really looking at what we want to achieve. And typically people will find uh, common ground. And, and I think that uh, that's, that's kind of like my experience that uh, you just need to make that happen, you know, bring the people in charge uh, on on both sides together and then looking at what we need to do to solve the problem. And I think that uh, everybody wants to solve that because, I mean, it, it is very important for like any nation that uh, you have talented and good workforce. And then, you know, that is what, of course, keeps the companies, the businesses, actually the public sector, of course, needs uh, good, you know, uh, um, good talent as well. Uh, so I think that uh, there is no kind of like conflict uh, there, and and we should be very very careful not to let then uh, various ideologies and, and things kind of like come in between because uh, we we all share a common goal, which is uh, we want to provide fantastic education, and then you know uh, after that you'll get fantastic jobs and hopefully like a fantastic life. And Samson, from your perspective, would you have any thoughts on you know uh, good models on how to bring the different parties together for? An- inclusive education. As we've seen in recent times, uh, there's a lot of blame game, maybe perhaps in, you know, this side in sub-Saharan Africa, where uh, you have private sector and, you know, people in corporations sitting on one side complaining all the time about university graduates. And you have, you know, the university also sitting somewhere and also complaining about private sector's uh, disinterest in engaging. Now, the situation is not the same when it comes to private institutions, because there are a number of private institutions that have made so much progress. And I'll give you an example. Ashasi University, which is located in Ghana, recently launched a master's program that is in partnership with ETH Zurich, right? And the program was designed paired with many stakeholders, students, private sector, and the two institutions, And they came up with a very unique model that is a representation of the kind of partnerships that we really seek and desire to see in our institutions. So I say that, look, let's have, you know, the the, the gatekeepers within these 
two different sectors, the policymakers and, and the people from industry. Let's have a representative or some form of representation to say, okay, each country could either establish a council that has representation from both private and public organizations. So the policymaker, the private sector, public institutions come together, sit and come up with a roadmap for ensuring that we are able to upskill our graduates so that when we're churning our graduates out of our universities, they have the skills to be able to adapt to work and to evolve into careers and into pathways that would empower them and also liberate them from poverty. From what's dragging access to education to taking healthcare into new horizons, the humanitarian non-profit organization Mercy Ships recently launched a new hospital ship to help people along the African coast. We caught up with their COO Robert Corley to find out more about the initiative and its remarkable volunteers. Man, these volunteers are amazing. They come from over 60 nations. People come from all walks of life, all backgrounds. They do so at their own expense. They spend time raising their own funds, sacrificing in many cases personally, just to serve people they don't even know. They're going to bring skills from their professions. You've got mariners, you've got physicians, electricians, nurses, IT professionals, communications experts. You name it, we really have someone that does it either as a professional or they're just passionate about it. We've got professional chefs, uh, not to mention a fully accredited school on board. And so the children that come with adult volunteers, they're a major part of the service to the crew. If you have dedicated educators who donate their time and sweat to ensure that children are taken care of, then you're going to have more connected volunteers because they know that their children are well taken care of. So if you think about it like a floating city, almost, you got all the aspects of a city. We have hospitals as a primary focus, but you got to have all the rest of the infrastructure a normal city would have. Uh, we've got over 23,000 alumni uh, who have served at one point or another on a Mercy ship that continue to stay connected. It's pretty awesome. Why is it that you've chosen to have hospitals on ships rather than on-ground medical facilities? That's a, that's a great question, Ate. You know, given the name Mercy Ships, you might think it's just ships, but really we've got an amazing amount of work that happens on shore as well. Keep in mind that 40% of the world's population lives within 100 miles of a major port, and most of those countries have inadequate healthcare infrastructure. If we only focused on the ground, we would miss a major opportunity to address a gap. Well, it was the vision of our founder, actually, to provide ships, ships that bring that infrastructure to the people. Then through partnership and investments, we've been able to grow our onshore practice. Things like the, the Gamal Dental School and Clinic in Guinea, that's there to train and build the dental practices throughout West Africa. Now, ships are the way into the country, really, and allow for a lot of fantastic work to be done, but it's the partnership with the countries and the healthcare professionals, specifically right now in West Africa, that make the model successful. So that's why we tend to focus on ships as our primary driver. Let's jump from education and healthcare to sustainability. Nina Coppola, Director General of Business Finland, and Khalid Sharaf, Director Expo Business Program, spoke to us in the run-up to the Dubai 2020 Expo about making the world a better place. There's going to be a huge focus on Uh, making the world a better place. One of the big themes being sustainability. So it brings the issue uh, 
forward or in, to the minds of the people. And, and of course, then for Finland to be participating, it brings the Finnish solutions uh, forward and, and uh, make them visible. So I, I think the Expo is a very important tool in making, uh, enhancing the visibility of the matter and, and bringing also positive solutions. So not to dwell in a, in a negative way that, that things are going in a bad bad direction, but but really bringing the message forward that, that we need innovations Uh, we need technological solutions, and it, it is the the marketplace or the showcase place for all of us, or or for the people who go to the expo to see those uh, solutions and those things that we can make better. To build on what Nina is saying, yes, it is great that we have 191 countries bringing solutions from all around the world. That's that's a huge highlight in climate and biodiversity and making sure that, you know, we have solutions to derail where we're going towards uh, if we continue our behavior as people. But also, us as people, we need to change our behavior, as Nina mentioned in the beginning. And as organizers, other than, you know, our program for people and planet that has a specific climate and biodiversity week, bringing leaders and change makers from all around the world, We also have a sustainability pavilion. It's one of our anchor pavilions here, and its main goal, the whole experience, is for when people walk out of it, they walk out with a mindset of, I need to change my behavior. I need to change because if I don't change, our oceans are going to get polluted, our fish are going to die, and that has a whole huge impact on the ecosystem. If I don't change, Our forests are going to die. If our forests die, animals are going to die. If animals die, then it, it all links back together. So we as human species need to be change makers. Each one of us has to change their behavior. And that's one of the most important pillars that Expo 2020 is going to change. All people that walk through or experience Expo digitally. On the topic of our climate, one of my more recent guests was Petteri Taalas, the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization. I was keen to find out if we are suffering from some kind of climate fatigue. His response was really interesting. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, actually, we were really afraid uh, that uh, this uh, recent pandemic uh, would have been shadowing uh, interest to, to mitigate uh, climate change, and, uh, and, and luckily. Even during this pandemic, we have heard positive statements coming from several governments and several heads of state like USA, European Union, China, even fossil-based countries like Russia, Saudi Arabia, and and also South South Africa. At the moment, we have 63% of countries who have 63% of the global emissions, which are at least at the political level, aiming at becoming carbon neutral by 2050 or 2060. And the key issue is that we have to get uh, large masses of people behind uh, these uh, these actions. So so it's a it's a challenge to to find uh, such uh, solutions uh, that uh, ordinary people are buying. And I'm quite uh, confident that the world is uh, changing. But if we want to reach the low limit of Paris Agreement, uh, we should speed up our action and, uh, and and there would be a need for 
action already during this uh, decade. We cannot wait for several decades to start acting. We have to have to do it uh, already during the coming years. Last, and by no means least, I caught up with Vartsilas president and CEO Håkan Agneval to discuss how we can move the conversation around sustainability forward through decarbonization. Here's what he had to say. The theme of decarbonization is front and center today, with climate data showing that global warming continues at an alarming rate. Modern economies are, however, based on fossil fuels. So how do you see the much-needed and massive transformation unfolding? So we are just coming out of COP26, and uh, I would say the 1.5 degrees Celsius Paris Agreement targets, they are alive, but they are clearly on life support. And we really need to accelerate the decarbonization. We actually have the technologies that we need to make this transition already today, but we need to create a living playing field when it comes to the financial equation between the new solutions and the old solutions. At the end of the day, we need to make significant investments in new technology, but this new technology can actually bring down the energy costs overall. What a year it has been. Thank you to all my guests so far and to you, the listeners, for being with us on this journey. Make sure to tune in again in 2022, where there will be no shortage of talking points. Of that, I am sure. Please subscribe to our podcast on your platform and stay tuned for more fascinating interviews and discussions. I've been your host, Atte Palomäki, and today we went beyond business. <laughs>